maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer, Connor Boyle. Coming up on today's podcast, Nisha McSweeney, the historian and archaeologist, discusses her latest book, The West, A New History of an Old Idea, which asks whether the notion of Western civilization needs a rethink. Nisha McSweeney is Professor of Classical Archaeology at the University of Vienna. Her work largely focuses on ancient history, but from the perspective of a writer with finely tuned radar for issues concerning contemporary identity in the present. All of this informs her most recent book, which questions some of the well-established thinking in academia about the flow of cultural ideas between civilizations throughout history. Speaking to Nisha today is Edward Lucas, national security expert and columnist at The Times. Edward also put a few of our audience questions to Nisha too. Let's join Edward and Nisha now in conversation. Hello, everyone, and thank you indeed. It's a great pleasure to be discussing this book with Nisha because the West is really topical right now. Before the war in Ukraine, you could, there's a kind of, kind of easy to argue that the West is basically bust. You know, Trump had showed that America wasn't really um, part of the West. The Europeans had their other ideas. And one had a sneaking suspicion maybe the Chinese had a point that the age of the West was over. But boy, has that changed because the global coalition around Ukraine is 
a pretty good approximation to what we might call the West. And the ideas that Ukraine is fighting for also seem like classic Western ideas, the rule of law, democracy, liberty, the dignity of the individual, and so on. And in fact, it's quite often said that Ukraine is an east-west conflict, although actually, of course, it's also a north-south one. So that idea of Plato to NATO, um, which is the sort of encapsulation of, of the West, would seem to be absolutely back in the blaze of the contemporary spotlight. But reading Nisha's book, it is very thought-provoking and important to understand how complicated, I wouldn't say fragile, but how complicated this idea of the West is. It's not a sort of strong golden thread leading from Athens to the Roman Republic through to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and then to the um, American Revolution and then to the British Empire and then finally to the sort of glorious uh, coalition that won the Cold War and is now fighting Ukraine. Every element of that is actually much more complicated. And Nisha, I want to start off by asking you about the um, wonderful scene you draw as you um, have the idea for writing the book. And that is in the Library of Congress. And you look up and there are a certain number of other people there, all dead, all um, commemorated in statuary. And that, as one might say, gives you to think. Take us through what went through your mind and exactly where you were sitting. Thank you very much, Ed. First of all, thank you. And thank you to everyone for Intelligence Squared for having me here. It's really lovely to be able to talk about this book today. Um it really did start at exactly at that moment when I was sitting in the in the reading room, beautiful round reading room, and I was you know having writer's block. Yeah, you're right. I look up and there are these sixteen life, slightly larger than life size bronze figures, towering um, above me, looking down from the upper gallery, and these are um, a series of imagined intellectual ancestors of the Western tradition. There's a set of sculptures, bronze sculptures, put up in the 19th century. And you have, you know, it's everyone from Homer and Herodotus uh, through to Beethoven and Bacon, and then right up to um, the North, more recent North American um, thinkers, uh, jurists and scientists. And at the time I was writing a different book, which um, dealt with genealogies coming out of the Trojan War myth. And I guess I had genealogies on the mind. And it just occurred to me that this was a different type of genealogy. It was a materialised genealogy, a materialised, imagined, mythical genealogy. And um, the genealogy was that of Western civilization. Um, and, and this is really what got me thinking about trying to think about imagined genealogies in the modern world in a way that I'd, as an academic, I'd spent a lot of time doing um, for the ancient world. Um, and so this is six years ago, almost to the day. Um, and uh, finally, it's kind of crystallised and, and become something quite different, the project. But that is where it all started, imagined genealogies. And you illustrate this with real um, stories about real people. I think there's a couple of overlaps. Francis Bacon, I think, is in both the Library of Congress and in your book. Um, you kick off with 
Herodotus, who is often mistakenly um, seen as the sort of father of the idea of the West from his um, wonderfully vivid and sometimes accurate um, descriptions of the barbarians of the sort of the other world around Greece. But you point out that that's actually not uh, not a, a really a natural reading of Herodotus. He's a much more interesting and complicated character than that. And then you go right through um, to Edward Said um, in the uh, the other, other end of the time arc. So tell me and tell us, how did you select your um, your cast of characters and um, how do you fit them together? I wanted to do something a little bit different from what I'd seen in the Library of Congress. So I didn't want to have the the greats, a kind of a gallery of, of the most important or the most influential. I wanted to choose individual biographies um, of people whose lives would capture something more of the zeitgeist. Um, so people from different levels of society, people with different perspectives, and to get something, get capture something more of the variety. Um, so I wanted to kind of space them out over time. And there were some people I couldn't miss out. In fact, there were some people I feel I shouldn't have missed out, but I had to miss out for sheer issues of space. Um, so yes, yeah, starting with Herodotus, I knew that I had to start in the ancient Greek world, where we we tend to think of the West as having its birthplace and its origin. And absolutely, you're, you're right. Um, the whole point is that the, the deeper you dig into these sources, and Herodotus is my personal favourite author ever um, from all time, um, He, the deeper we dig into them, the more complex a picture of the ancient world they sketch out for us. And it's a very different, uh, much more complex, much more nuanced, much richer ancient world than we often tend to imagine nowadays. And then from there, it seemed to be obvious to move on to the Roman world, which is usually the next stepping stone in the imagined genealogy of Western civilization. And then from there, it seemed to be very logical to move forward into what we call the, the medieval period. Um, and in that period, I did want to try and get a geographical spread as well. So that's why I ended up with um, one author from medieval Baghdad, Al-Kindi, one author writing um, in Central Europe, Godfrey of Viterbo, um, and a final author in the Byzantine Empire, who's actually an emperor of the Byzantine Empire to um, Theodore Lascaris. So it was a matter of kind of progressing in time and trying to get a, a variety of different voices, each one contrasting with the one before. And then when it came to moving up in time into the Renaissance, into the early modern world, and then into the modern world, it was one of the things I wanted to capture was, again, that variety of different voices too. So I was trying to get um, male and female voices, trying to get a geographical spread. So we're going through Renaissance Italy, um, through the Ottoman Empire, into kind of Enlightenment Britain with, with Bacon, um, and then moving forward to West Africa um, in the 17th century and then into the revolutionary America before coming back to Britain of the 19th century and then um, um, into the 20th century. So trying to get that variety was really important to me. But of course, in order to try and hear some of these voices, the bias is, of course, that these are people who've often left writings 
behind them. So most of these are people who uh, were authors or whose words were in some way preserved in the historical record, either as documents, as letters, um, or explicitly um, in, in published literature. So mostly cultural writers, rather than the real silent majority, I suppose, of um, the past. I should have said, actually, your, your use of the word zeitgeist uh, suddenly reminded me that I haven't properly introduced you, of course. You're the professor of classical archaeology at the University of Vienna, but you divide your time between um, Vienna and Oxford. And your previous book on Troy, Troy, Myth, City and Icon, was about the um, mythic and archaeological significance of that um, city where, of course, history is completely written by the victors and in fictional, with a heavy dose of fiction as well. Um, so there was room to restore the historical perspective on on that. And and, and that reminds me that um, we, we sort of almost kick off with the idea of Greece and Troy or um, being the, the, uh, the, the war on Troy being a sort of clash of civilizations, which is actually quite ahistorical. So, so even what we think we know about the ancient Greek world is at sometimes at 90 degrees the fact the idea that Athens was a sort of pure democracy and Sparta was the sort of wicked Putinist militarized society um, that's actually not quite right we've got we've got Troy wrong as well and that the and the ancient Greek Empire was was not really part of the of a West in any sense that we'd understand it because it was um, engaged most of the time in a sort of tussle with Persia which was um, further east but it would not it, they, they, the ancient Greeks have been baffled by the use that we've made of their ideas and their history. Well, yes, some of them would, but I think some of them would recognise it utterly. Um, and I think what's quite interesting is that the the narrative we've taken from ancient Greece has been a narrative which was, at the time, a very specific political narrative promoted by Athens in the mid-5th century particularly. So it's, it's almost as if we've highlighted on um, one strand of politicised historiography um, and elevated it above the other strands and chosen to, 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 to follow that particular um, strand. So as you say, there is this history of interaction um, in conflict with the Persian Empire um, by a coalition of Greek city-states. But the trouble with this is it's not all the Greek city-states. They're never united anyway. Quite a few of them are fighting on the Persian side. They d Quite a few of them don't see this as a clash of civilizations of East versus West, Europe versus versus. Asia. And that's why I wanted to start with Herodotus, because of course he tells the story of the Persian Wars. And in Herodotus, it is not a story of a clash of civilizations. It is a complex story of different groups of people who have got a lot of internal politics going on, um, which leads them to this, builds up and builds up and builds up and leads to this conflict. So the idea that the Persian, Greco-Persian wars were a clash of civilizations. This comes from a particular thread of Athenian political, I don't want to say propaganda, but certainly Athenian political rhetoric, which the administration at Athens is very keen to promote, specifically in the context of what Athens is doing in relation to quite a few of the other Greek states of the period. And they what they do is they transform what was originally an alliance against Persia into 
what is essentially an Athenian empire. It stops being um, a li- an alliance of equals against an external threat, and it basically starts to become Athens demanding tribute from its uh, so-called allies. And anyone who tries to break away has to suffer the consequences. I mean, the most dramatic of these being um, what um, happens suppo- might happen on Milos and, and Mytilene, where all the adult men are killed and all the women and children sold into slavery. And this is what you do to fellow Greeks who no longer want to be part of your alliance. And so the rhetoric against the Persians and the rhetoric of the barbarian Eastern Asian other becomes a political tool at this point in order to justify Athenian imperialism in order to justify the reason why you need to stay in this alliance under the leadership of Athens. And this important political context is something which is often missed now when we talk about the Greco-Persian Wars. And we've we've almost accepted the Athenian line that it was a clash of civilizations, but of course not all Greeks saw it that way. I particularly liked, Nisha, your detour to um, Baghdad, which you point out was actually the biggest city in the world um, at, uh, was it in the 8th century or 9th, I think 9th century? And you have this wonderful description of the House of Wisdom, which sounds to me like the sort of place that Intelligence Squared of the of the day would have been <laughs> absolute, absolutely at home. And I, I think and a lot of us would have, if those of us lucky, lucky enough to have um, studied the, these sort of things, would have known that there was a enormous debt to the Arab world for keeping alive the um, Greek and Roman insights into science and literature and, 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 and other things during the so-called Dark Ages. Uh, but just take us on a brief trip to, uh, to Baghdad, which um, in those days was, was possibly one sort of the capital of world civilization, if that's not putting it too strongly. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I would love to take a virtual trip to 9th century Baghdad, just probably the larger city at, at the time. I think only Xi'an in China might have rivaled it for a size, about a million people. In comparison, London is about 14,000 population and Constantinople is only about 150,000 people. So the sheer scale of this metropolis would have been mind-boggling for people who visited it in the day. And it's this beautifully, carefully planned city initially around a series of concentric circles um, around the caliph's palace with a series of um, canals and uh, water routes as well. And it drew in, um, as you would expect, a city of, of, of that size, the capital of the Abbasid Empire. It drew in people from all over the um known world at the time. So you have um, the the latest in information technology revolutions coming in from China, which is, of course, the use of paper. We have writers and philosophers and mathematicians from the Indian subcontinent and from Central Asia. We have uh, naturalists coming from East Africa. Um, and we have, of course, people from all over Arabia and Persia as well, North Africa, pouring in to this kind of great centre of commerce and culture. But as you say, also of learning as well. And um, there is this wonderful, yes, the house of wisdom as established by the Caliph al-Mahmoun, who wanted to assemble the greatest minds from his empire in one place to pool human knowledge 
and uh, intellectual activity to really concentrate. And it sounds like a f- fabulous place. The different types of people um, who would have come there would have been fabulous. Right. And the reason I've, I've gone for this little detour is he's so far away from the sort of classic, dry, geopolitical sense of the West, which is, I think, actually very much an American uh, and possibly even sort of American Cold War idea that we, you know, our roots are in Judeo-Christian civilization and the intellectual heritage of Greece, Greece and Rome. And so now, you know, get out of our way. And in fact, we are about to invade Iraq in, on behalf of the West. Uh, so there's a sort of, there's a kind of uh, loop there. Um, but I worry a little bit reading your book that you are um, pushing to some extent as a straw man because I think most people now if you say western civilization certainly the younger generation probably go ya boo colonialism empire um, <laughs> racism hegemonic hegemonic discourse control and so on so um, but but I- explain a little bit what's what's the actual thing you're 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 attacking here is it's it's fundamentally it's a, it's a, it's a misunderstanding it's an instrumental instrumentalization of, of of these different strands of history yes that's it um, you're right. We have. I do think most of us know have a good sense now of the of the real diversity of the our intellectual heritage or a Western intellectual heritage that it does include medieval Baghdad that it does include a much wider world than strictly Western civilization as a narrative allows. And yet the problem is is that we still do have this myth of Western civilization. It is still prevalent. It's still woven into the fabric of political discourse in particular. And I mean, we saw it even as recently as the January the 6th uh, riots on the Capitol in America, um, where you did have rioters who were wearing Greek helmets, wearing uh, emblazoned Greek uh, slogans, Molon Labe, come and take them, which is a reference um, to weapons. Um, They were in Roman centurion's outfits. They were pictures of President Trump dressed um, as a Roman emperor. So we still hang on to this rhetoric. So one of the things I wanted to do in this book is to try and explain why we still hold on to a story which we know, most of us know, is not actually factually accurate. So why are we hanging on to this story? And also to, uh, the other thing I wanted to do was to really um, put in a plea for us not to hang on to this story anymore, but instead to try and embrace a story which is closer to the historical truth, which is something a lot richer and a lot more diverse. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I suppose it's always a temptation to appropriate the past because the past can't complain about it. And um, I, I'm not sure it's you, you highlight the way in which the, you know, the the Renaissance people said we are the um, internet intellectual legatees of Greece and Rome, which was possibly true. And then the Enlightenment um, also ha- had that idea. But I suppose you know, in in Britain we've said that were the inheritors of King Arthur, who possibly didn't exist, or if he did exist, was very unlike what Geoffrey of Monmouth used him as a a sort of ideological uh, progenitor of the idea of chivalry. So I I, I just wonder, and this has come up on the the question, is it it, uh, that unusual that um, anyone who's trying to run a political and ideological value system um, grab, looks around in the sort of historical grab bag to find anything that might um, su- support their ideas. It's, 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 it's not just us doing that with Greeks and Greeks and Romans. I think it's probably probably you know, the Chinese are doing it as well. Yep, absolutely. And this is, this is why I don't think it is West bashing to say we have to be critical and rethink and confront the way we've constructed our history because everybody does it. Um, and we've got, you know, definitely it's happened in modern China. It's certainly happening in Russia um, at the moment in the run-up to the U- um, the invasion of Ukraine. Of course, Putin very famously posted a, um, an, a historical account of what he felt was the um, relationship historically between Russia and Ukraine. So, I mean, it, it is not by any means a just a purely Western thing. And I think we can see it back um, through all human populations from the very beginning of time. And I mean, this is in a sense what I was trying to get out with the Athenian example in classical Athens, they reimagined the Persian, not just the Persian wars, they reimagined the Trojan war as being a clash of civilizations. When if you go back to Homer, it's, it's 
clearly not a clash of civilizations and Homer. It's in the Homeric poems. It is a war where people are, who are cousins are fighting on both sides. Um, and yet it is the classical, classical Athenians who want their political, it suits their political rhetoric to reimagine the Trojan War um, as a clash of civilizations. And so, you know, all human societies do this, but that doesn't mean that we have to just sit and be happy with what we've got. And I think that's one of the things I wanted to argue in this book as well, is just because we've done it in the West, we, the West have done this, doesn't mean that we have to um, just say, well, we've got an imagined history now. Let's stick with this imagined history um, which we've created, even though we know it's false, because everyone else is doing it. So let's do it too. I think what we should be doing is acknowledging that the current imagined history that we do have doesn't really fit the needs of the present anymore. It was constructed to fit the needs of another present a couple of hundred years ago, and it doesn't really do what we want it to do for us now. So now is a good time. I mean, exactly as you said, Ed, I mean, the idea of the West is coming back in a really big way. And yet we're not really discussing what the West is and we're trying to define the West, or so we're trying to defend Western civilization, and without really being clear about what it is we're trying to defend, and and this is, I think, part of the problem. Yes, I I, I felt that if if the um anyone in your um, cast of characters should be given this book as a sort of re remedial um, education project to explain why they're wrong. It should probably be William Gladstone, who I think uh, you I, you highlight as being the person who um, absolutely built up this idea of Western civilization as the, uh, with three, I think with three enormous books based on a pretty idiosyncratic reading of um, how classical Greece operated, but sort of crowbarring the poor Greeks and Romans into a um, being the um, uh, the justification for the for the British Empire, and um, with a hefty dose of European supremacism and uh, um, basically sort of white racism. But then, what was so puzzling to me, even he, who was perhaps was the kind of I, I would say in your book is the arch westernizer, found it terribly difficult to re reconcile Christianity with ancient Greek and Rome. And he felt that, Christ, that, that Jesus made a terrible mistake in being born in what he saw as a sort of inferior Middle Eastern um, culture. It'd be much much better if Jesus had been born in Greece. <laughs> And that that would have fitted all fitted together much better. And it seems to me that there's a, there's a tension all the way through between the Christianity, which is basically a Middle Eastern religion, and Judaism, which is basically a Middle, East, Middle Eastern religion, and then Greece and Rome being seen, rightly or wrongly, but as a sort of you know, they're sort of political progenitors of um, of of the, of the political West. And that tension, I think, is there to the present day. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, for Gladstone, as you say, it's wrapped up in anti-Semitism, anti and it's also wrapped up inevitably in his relationship with his arch-rival Disraeli, of course, who was, of course, um, born a Jew. So there was this absolute tension. I think it's, we still do it, I think, now when we see, when we write histories of Christianity. Some of these histories start for us in platonic thought in the Greek world, because we struggle so much to disassociate uh, from classical antiquity and and to see uh, the root of, of almost anything Western as being uh, fundamentally Middle Eastern, um, but of course Christianity is 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 not purely European. It's not purely Western. And to understand the history of all the different Christian churches is something which would take us beyond into Africa, into Asia, especially in the medieval period. The diversity of medieval 
Christianities is for, it was for me very um, exciting to to really try and understand that and learn about that in the process of researching uh, for this book. If you could actually meet any of the people you were writing about and ask them something, who would it be and what would you ask them? I hate to be the, the boring classist, but it would definitely be Herodotus. Um, and I'd want to hear all about his travels firsthand, um, just because I, I you get the feeling in the histories, the more you read the histories and the more you reread the histories, that uh, he had a lot more to say, which he didn't always put down on paper. So I'd love to hear the rest of those stories. Yes. Well, I, I sometimes fantasise that we'll find some forgotten Herodotus scrolls somewhere at the back of a, a church in some obscure part of the Near East, and um, then we'll, we'll get some extra extra clues. But um, I suppose the, but the, the other big question, which I think is is, is very important, is, and, and you kind of finish the book on this, that you say you're, you're not attacking the West, you're celebrating it, but in, in a, you're celebrating a sort of deeper form of, of, of what we might call Westernism um, than this sort of supremacist model exemplified by the Trumpists on January the 6th. And, and, and it seems to me that the, the sort of the genius of the Western idea is the constant reinvention. To me, the fundamental idea is that everything's contestable. If you don't like what the government does, you can form a political, political party, you can run for parliament, you can um, sue them in the court, you can have a demonstration, you can write a cross book about it. Um, but with it, every government decision is ultimately contestable and every idea is ultimately contestable and that sort of constant friction tension churning um, is extremely important it's the, the opposite of the sort of rigid static top-down what you might call the sort of papal um, paper model and you you end the book by saying what could be more western than engaging in dialogue and what could be more western than reimagining the shape of of history so in i i i i wouldn't want readers to think uh, listeners to think that you're um a kind of west basher you're more west west reinterpreter uh, uh, reinterpreter and a west celebrator i think that is key actually that um one of the things i tried to bring out in the book were the different imaginings of Western history by different people through time. So we we are in a moment, or we are in perhaps the last hundred years or so, where there's one very dominant version of Western history, which has been repeated and repeated. But that doesn't mean it was the only version. Um, and to understand the different versions of Western history and to appreciate and embrace them, I think that that, that diversity of imaginings is the only thing they all have in common, or it's the main thing they all have in common. And and it was it, it one of the th things that I was struggling with in the process of writing this book was thinking about precisely this 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 rigidity of not wanting to change the story, um, and the idea that it's some people getting upset about the idea that you might want to rewrite history, um, the legions of the the left and bastions of wokery and people who are very upset about this feel that there are people who are attacking the West because they want to rewrite history, when actually rewriting history is... As, as I understand it, a fundamentally very Western thing to do when when your understanding of what the facts are change, when you learn new facts, you should try and integrate them and change your interpretations and change your historical imaginings um, along with them. So it's it's kind of an anti rigidity, if you will. So against that uh, sense of absolutism. Yes. 
one of my Times colleagues the other day was writing on this and said, what do you mean attacking people for rewriting history? That's what historians do. That's the, almost the definition of history. You take the past, chew on it, chew on it, and try and find some different um, different elements. Um, well, I, I, I want to move on because there's such a lot of excellent questions. I worry we're not going to get through all of them. Um, but there's, um, what uh, Sarah has asked, is it common in other cultures to claim that they're superior to others, or is it just Western ones? And we, we've sort of answered that already, but I, I, I want to particularly go in on one of the most interesting um, little um, sort of detours in your book, which is the um, the, the Congress of uh, the, sort of the, the get together of countries that think they are rooted in ancient civilizations, which is the Greeks and the Chinese, and was it Mexico? I think was uh, or one of the, the Aztecs, but this idea that you're sort of in a, if you have an ancient civilization behind you, that puts you in the sort of Premier League of um, compared to compared to other countries who've got no written history from before whatever I know 1200 or something um, so um, just to, to talk us through this sort of alliance of ancient civilizations and how it works yes yeah, so this is a forum which was established by China and Greece jointly um, and I think god I'm forgetting whether it's 2020 uh, 2017 uh, around this time which um, promotes cultural understanding and cooperation um, by countries which claim an ancient civilization, so ancient China, ancient Greece, ancient Italy. So Italy is part of it as well. Um, Iran is part of it because of the of ancient Persia, um, and so it's a and, and uh, Iraq. So there's this club of countries celebrating their ancient uh, civilizations, which is. Great. It is great to celebrate, as I, w I would say this as an historian and archaeologist, to celebrate um, ancient uh, civilizations and cultures. Um, but embedded within the rhetoric of this contemporary organization is the idea of cultural and civilizational continuity, that the modern nation state in which um, the geographical core of uh, an ancient civilization is located is by default the 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 air the genealogical and um, intellectual air of that ancient civilization and there's a sense of um, that ancient civilization perhaps belongs to a particular modern nation state and and not to others um, so there's a sense of conf um, restricting um, affiliation um, of to certain parts of antiquity. Uh, to to a modern political unit, um, which is quite different from, I would say, traditional Western ideas of cultural change and civilization, where we have this narrative of civilization moving from from Greece to Rome to Western Europe to North America. That's how the standard narrative goes. But civilization moves. It's not limited by place. It's not limited by people. It's certainly not limited by uh, gene real genealogies. So there's a difference here in terms, again, of that either change on the one hand or rigidity, rigidity on the other and continuity on the other. It's just it's two very different models of how to relate back to um, the ancient past. Yes, I, 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 when I read that um, thing, I thought it's jolly nice to be one of the um, ancient civilizations that survived. Um, if I was the last surviving 
Carthaginian or Etruscan, I might feel that um, the uh, the other ancient civilizations that didn't survive aren't getting um, aren't getting such such a look in. Um, but I think you've we we we've um, that's also I think answered Tom's question about the different historical lineage between modern Europe and modern China that the um, they're both um, ancient but but different. There's a very good point um, question from Rene de Paula from Sao Paulo in Brazil, who says it's ironic that some of the Western traditions are not so Western. Phoenicians invented the alphabet, Arabs invented numbers, India discovered zero, and Jesus was a Jew from the Middle East. I think it's actually true that the Phoenician alphabet is based in some part on Egyptian hieroglyphics. I think the letter A actually comes from the Egyptian hieroglyphic for a bird, but you probably know that better than um, better than me. So there's actually nothing that you could you could put your finger on and say that is actually totally authentically Western, or maybe, maybe there's some exception to this to this rule. I, I think well, I, I I would say that perhaps what you want to claim as Western is is the amalgam of um, ideas and influences coming from different places. It doesn't have to, I mean, unless you want, it depends again where, where you want to define as Western. Does it have, does it have to be European and North American? Um, and so th this is it. What do you mean by uniquely Western? Um, which is part of the, the, the question about, you know, what the West is and trying to defend the West. What is it that we are seeking to defend and um, trying to pin that down would be helpful, I think. Yes, I, I mean, it seems to me that the, as a humble, humble scribbler, that the one of the points about the West is that it's actually very inclusive, and we've for I mean, even during the Cold War, Japan was part of the West, although it could be hardly further, further more, far, more, more far east um, looked at from Western Europe. And we have uh, um, also sort of the the, the non-Western, geographically Western West includes countries like um, South Korea, and I would argue Taiwan. If there are any people from mainland China listening, they'll be all having fits because I've just said Taiwan's a country, and of course they say it it, it, it isn't. But the sort of the basic ideas of rule of law and the contestability we talked about um, uh, earlier are really. I think universal ones, and we 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 can celebrate that. Well, well, I don't know, Ed. I mean, you you say that, um, but there are people who would claim to be defenders of the West, who wouldn't necessarily say that the principles of democracy or rule of law are at the heart of Western identity. And I think this is part of the ongoing culture wars. There are people who would say that the core of Western identity is something racial and genealogical and biological. Um, and that is a discussion which is happening within the West. You know, is is what it means to be Western something kind of biological and in, in primordial essence of some people and not others? Or is what it means to be Western something to do with ethics and principles and values? That is a discussion which is happening inside the West. And that is something we need to sort out to get our house in order almost before we can start trying to project that. Yes. I, I absolutely agree those are going on. And I'm, I'm constantly in discussion with my American Republican friends who have this line that we are 
a republic, not a democracy. They say this with tremendous fervor about the United States, and they feel that um, Athenian democracy was flawed, I think not because of the slavery and women not having the vote. They worry that it was that the sort of one person, one vote led to um, populism and bad decisions. And they much prefer the idea of, of a sort of attenuated democracy in the form of the, of the Roman Republic. I'm not quite sure that is justified by history as well. So I agree that these arg- arg- the, the, these arguments rage. I, I find it quite hard to um, believe that the Western idea is anything really to do with race. I think that was a sort of Gladstonian, and that was the era of the American Revolution, and um, a little bit um, were very conflicted because they were worried about being enslaved by the Brits, but didn't mind enslaving their own African-American people. But I, it, it seems to me that the, the, the racial element has pretty much disappeared. So if you look at a summit of Western leaders and you see the Japanese there and and others, it's quite hard to say this is a sort of now a, a, a club of the white nations, not least when quite a few of the democracies have um, leaders, in, even in, in Europe and North America, have leaders from time to time who are anything but white. So um, I, I wonder if you're a bit overstating the sort of lingering racial element to it, but um, do feel free to push back on that. No, I think, I think, but I think, I think you're right. Um, so for me, Personally, that does sh- does not define the West anymore. I don't think that's what the West of the 21st century is about. And that's why we do, that's precisely why we need to jettison the myth of Western civilization as this elevated genealogy, because it is a history of the West. It's a mythology of Western origins, which doesn't fit the modern West—it doesn't fit us anymore. It was a—it was a story that was imagined at a time when it fitted what the West wanted to be, but it doesn't fit what the modern West wants to be. As far as I'm, as far as I understand it, there are people within the modern West who I think still would like the modern West to be that. Um, but I think, as, as you say, for many people within the modern West, this is not how we think of it anymore. So we should stop telling ourselves this is where we come from because also we don't. Yes, I, I think you can quite fairly attack the sort of imagined genealogy. But if what you've argued so brilliantly in the book is that the real genealogy is actually both diverse and inclusive. And if you believe in the um, what you might call Western civilization, then you will absolutely be delighted about the fact it has a whacking great element from two Middle Eastern religions and from a empire that stretched all the way to Afghanistan, which is, I think, where Alexander the Great got to, um, in, in immense sort of Byzantine uh, legacy and uh, and also um, cultural continuity, thanks to the Arabs. So one can argue quite strongly that it was uh, the, the real genealogy is, is is anything but sort of a sort of Euro-Atlantic ethnocentric one. Absolutely, and it's anything but linear. Um, and that is yeah. that is why this is the that is the history we need to be telling ourselves and putting in statues in major public libraries and celebrating and putting in in school school textbooks which um uh, so yes absolutely i look forward to more intelligent squared events ahead where we all chew on these and other things but in the meantime i would just like to thank you nisha for a really fascinating conversation for a sizzlingly good book it's called the west a new history of an old idea please don't order it from amazon they have enough money already go to your local independent bookshop and order it there <laughs> um and that way we will keep your bookshops in business i'm edward lucas i tweet as at edward lucas 
and um, you can find about me on the internet. You can find Nisha on the internet, and you can find Intelligence Squared on the internet and all their upcoming events. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in, and Nisha, thank you again very much for um, your thoughts and for your wonderful book. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback on what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com.